Good evening, Christ Church. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I would encourage you to open them to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. This will be the text for our lesson this evening in this, the penultimate lesson in our series of One Another's. Uh, We have been preaching through the One Another's of the New Testament for about 10 weeks now. The final or ultimate lesson in this series will come to us next week uh, from the dear Pastor King. We're all looking forward to that, and after tonight we might need it as he preaches that we're supposed to admonish one another. So we'll see how that goes. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1. The one another that we are speaking about this evening is bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Or an alternate title to this lesson might be the case for Christian patience. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we open your holy and infallible word tonight, we ask your blessing upon our meditations upon it. Please open our eyes that we would see your greatness, open our minds, that we would understand your truth, and open our hearts and fill them with the love and gratitude that only you can inspire. Amen. This is a good time of year to practice patience. For the next few weeks, there will be many lines and much waiting in them. Lines at the post office, lines at the grocery store, lines at the mall. And the cars will be lined up too. If you find yourself near La Santerra or Katie Mills, or if you are truly a masochist, you can join the consumerist herd attempting to enter the Galleria. Closer to Christmas, the traffic will build as people leave to visit family in places like Dallas or San Antonio or Mississippi or Michigan. Inattentive or agitated drivers will change lanes abruptly without using a turn signal. They won't yield the right-of-way. They will drive slow in the left lane, a mortal sin, according to our Catholic cousins. But in other words, that's just a typical day of driving in Houston, Texas, but with a splash of eggnog just to keep things interesting. All of this will try your patience. But our passage this evening is not really about the sort of fortitude necessary for tolerating holiday congestion. Instead, the patience and gentleness noted in Ephesians 4 might be more applicable to dinner conversations during family gatherings. Consider that sweet covenant child who has gone away to college only to return with an omniscient understanding of all manner of topics and opinions to match. Little Johnny has strong feelings about the Industrial Revolution, clear-cut forestry, and about climate change. Boy, does Johnny have strong feelings about climate change. 
and it's very likely that you're going to hear all about them at Christmas dinner. Or maybe your dear cable news addicted Uncle Walter is holding court about the condition of our nation. If opinion polling can be believed, most Americans seem to agree that the country has seen better times. It's who's to blame that generates the worst debate, and who's to blame varies depending on which cable news channel you watch. If Uncle Walter and Little Johnny have been watching different news channels, and of course they have, the conversation could quickly turn incendiary. Winston Churchill once said that a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. And Johnny and Uncle Walt are fanatical about their political opinions. So your dinner table just might become a rhetorical battlefield. You can avoid them all by shopping online. But unlike the line at the post office, you can't just give up and leave the family Christmas when your patience runs out. This is your house. And even if it weren't, these are your people. And they will still be your people when the argument is over and the pie is all gone. When Paul instructs the Ephesian church to be patient with one another and bear with one another, he is talking to a group of people who resemble your Christmas dinner companions far more than the faceless consumerists at the mall or on the highways. So this evening we will consider what some have called Christian patience, as opposed to the generic civic virtue type patience you learn in preschool. It is what the Apostle Paul describes as bearing with one another. It is a patience that flows from love and gratitude for God's blessings in our lives and that counts our brothers and sisters in Christ among those rich blessings. Tonight we will look at what Christian patience is and why and how we should practice Christian patience and cultivate it in our lives. So what does it mean to bear with one another? Let's look again at verses 1 through 3 of our passage. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When God saves us, he justifies us individually, each and all justly deserving the wrath of God. But he does not save us into isolation from other believers. God sets us apart from the world, but he saves us into a body of believers that is the body of Christ. We are saved into a community of faith, the church, which the Holy Spirit preserves, and that someday will be presented by the Father to the Son as his bride without spot or blemish. As Charles Hodge puts it in his discussion of Christian patience, there is no doctrine of Scripture more plainly revealed than that the Spirit of God dwells in all believers and that his presence is the ultimate ground of their unity as the body of Christ. The body of Christ is one because it is pervaded by one and the same Spirit, that being the Holy Spirit. This seems to be what Paul has in mind when he writes of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here, he is speaking, of course, of the body of Christ and its peace and purity. When we are saved, we are made joint heirs with Christ Jesus and with all of the other joint heirs whom God has also saved. We become a spiritual family 
populated entirely by those whom God has made his own people, which is to say we have been adopted into the family of God. But like our imaginary Christmas table where know-it-all Johnny and cranky Uncle Walt debate the moral value of a national minimum wage, on this side of glory there will be members of God's family who do not always agree. And they just might have some trouble getting along with each other. For that reason, in this life, it is important that God's people learn to bear with one another in love, to practice Christian patience. So what is it then to bear with one another? Bearing with one another, or Christian patience, is the active, practical outworking of a deep love and concern for the body of Christ and her many members. I'll say that again. Christian patience is the active, practical outworking of a deep love and concern for the body of Christ and her many members. Hodge describes it this way. It is a disposition which leads to the suppression of anger and to patient forbearance towards your fellow man. Such forbearance means restraining yourselves in reference to each other in love, which induces Christians to be forbearing towards each other. A brief word on the concept of forbearance, which is how some translations render bearing with one another. Forbearance is a word not commonly used anymore, except in the legal or financial worlds. In that sense, forbearance relates to a person who holds a right or a prerogative, voluntarily choosing not to enforce that right or to exercise that prerogative. If a lender gives forbearance to a borrower on a loan, he has chosen to suspend the borrower's obligations relating to the loan, sometimes permanently, sometimes only temporarily. Another way to think about forbearance is that it is an advantage not pressed, or an obligation not enforced. Christian forbearance would be the opposite of the man who pounds on the table demanding his rights. Instead, forbearance looks more like the wise man of Proverbs 19, who overlooks an offense and is thus blessed. So bearing with one another, of course, includes patience, but it is patience with a purpose. And that purpose is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in and for the body of Christ. In Colossians 3.12, Paul uses a very similar formulation for bearing with one another. He writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. What we see here is obviously something more than garden variety patience, out of compassionate hearts, from kindness and humility. God's chosen ones abide together in harmony. That is, they bear with one another for the unity of the body of Christ, seeking the good of its members. But in that same passage, Paul continues, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, Christian patience or bearing with one another is much more than good manners or passive civility. It is more than the ability to wait, to be inconvenienced, or to muddle through. All of these skills are very useful in our world, 
But Christian patience includes much more. It includes, it requires the ability and the willingness to forgive those who have wronged us or caused us harm. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with Paul's description in Corinthians 12 of the body of Christ having many members, that there are many different members joined together in just one body. In Paul's metaphor, the body cannot be only feet or only ears or only noses. All members of the body are essential so that the eye would never say to the hand, you're not needed here. Not only does the body of Christ have many members, though, and of course all of them essential, those members have been created by God with different personalities and opinions and experiences in their walk with God and in life generally. Some of us are shy and introverted. Others are gregarious and have never met a stranger. Some are lethargic. Others are hyperkinetic. We have quiet Christians and boisterous Christians. Some sweet, some salty. This is part of what makes the church a more interesting community. Every Lord's Day is like a big family gathering. But it also should not be surprising that we frequently misunderstand each other or offend each other, even unintentionally. Now, once we grasp that an offense we have suffered is the result of a misunderstanding, we can all agree that it should be relatively easy to forgive and move on in Christian fellowship. But what about those times when our brother or sister in Christ has truly sinned against us or caused us real harm? Remember Paul's instruction. If you have a complaint against another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive each other. Christian patience earnestly seeks harmony. It seeks the peace and unity of the body of Christ. An earlier sermon in this series dealt extensively with the command to forgive one another, so we won't retread that ground this evening. But I would commend to you that sermon as it was preached several weeks ago by our brother Mike Burns. One point I think worth addressing here, though, relates to forgiving offenses for which no apology has been offered. Again, we should all agree that when a brother truly apologizes and displays remorse for an offense, then forgiveness must be forthcoming. But forgiveness can be more difficult without that penitent overture. Here we should refer back to the plain and ordinary meaning of Paul's instruction in Colossians 3.13, and I quote, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Here Paul omits any reference to a confession or an apology or even a half-hearted mea culpa. Paul writes that because God has forgiven you, you must forgive others. And then he says, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here, Scripture commands us to forgive and then reminds us of the love that enables such forgiveness. It is the love of God implanted within us and the heartfelt desire for the peace, purity, and harmony of the body of Christ and our love for its members that drives true Christian patience and the forgiveness that God requires us all to extend to one another. About this requirement to forgive, we should keep in mind that forgiveness is not always the end of a matter. Sometimes reconciliation should be pursued, or in cases of sin that would be harmful to another person or to the church, even after forgiveness has been granted, 
Real work must be done to repair a relationship or repair damage caused by an offense or to correct truly bad behavior. In such cases, forgiveness does not imply a return to a status quo of wickedness or even abuse. Forgiveness should be extended, but the person offering forgiveness should not be expected to suffer continued harm. If I may offer a silly illustration, suppose that I have gone 75 straight days without removing my dirty socks from the bedroom floor. Every day I come home, my socks fall off my feet and remain there until my wife picks them up or the dog eats them. That actually happens at my house. Not the socks part, the eating the socks part. For 75 days, my long-suffering wife has picked up my socks, forgiven my slovenliness, and gently reminded me to remove my pungent hosiery to the clothes basket. On day 76, she would forgive me again, but I should be proactive about reconciling this mess that I have caused. At the very least, I should show the sincerity of my repentance by actually picking up my socks. And until I show some consistency of laundry performance, she would be within her right to remain skeptical, even as she patiently holds out hope for the mortification of my carelessness. About these things, Sinclair Ferguson writes, Christian patience involves being able to take a long-term view of a fellow Christian as a work in process, remembering that our Lord has been and is so patient with us. How easily we lose sight of that and treat fellow believers as though Christ never needed to be patient with us. So now that we have some idea of what it means to bear with one another and to exercise Christian patience, let's focus for a moment on the reason for all of this. Why should believers bear with one another and practice Christian patience? Well, we, we did hint at this a moment ago, but in the simplest terms, we should bear with one another and live a life of Christian patience because of the great and unmerited patience that God has shown to us. If we go back to our text, verse 4 of Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Out from spiritual darkness, God has called his people into the light of the one and only hope of our salvation, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And as Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we skip down in that same chapter to verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is powerful language that Paul uses. Take note, it's not that we just made some bad choices. It's not that we got a little off track or even that we were indifferent toward the things of God. No. Paul writes that without Christ, we were the enemies of God. Being the enemies of God makes us allies with Satan, placing us in full and open rebellion against the great creator God of the universe, by whom all things were made, by whom all things are sustained, and without whom nothing would exist. And make no mistake, sinners are God's enemies, carelessly breaking his law and sinning in prideful arrogance and committing cosmic treason against the creator. And yet, God was and is patient, even with his enemies. In his delightful little book, Charity and Its Fruits, 
Jonathan Edwards states that God is long-suffering to the sinners that he spares and to whom he offers his mercy even while they are rebelling against him. And this mercy he showed to them even while they were enemies and rebels. Here, Edwards is using the term for patience used in the King James Bible. This term, long-suffering, carries with it a different connotation in English than do other translations' use of the term patience. There is an aspect of endurance, of perseverance, that is easy to miss in the more modern use of patience. One does not suffer long or provide continued forbearance without exceedingly strong motivation. And here, Edwards refers to the great mercy and love that God displays towards sinners as he suffers long their rebellion as his enemies and as rebels. Some of those enemies God chose to save, and he forgave them, forgave us, for his own glory and out of the abundance of his own goodness. Even to those sinners that God does not save, his patience and mercy continues. Have you ever wondered why it is that God does not rain fire down from heaven upon the wicked? He would have every right to punish his enemies this way or to cause the earth to open up and swallow them. And yet, they remain, with the rain falling on them and the sun shining upon them just as it does on God's obedient people. In God's good pleasure, he saves whom he will. And even with those persistent in their rebellion who never repent, God remains patient, withholding for a time his hand of judgment. Paul uses a number of metaphors to describe the sinner's condition before he has been saved by grace through faith. In Romans 5, we saw that sinners are, are the enemies of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that without Christ, we are spiritually dead with no hope whatsoever. If we begin in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is very important that we never forget the condition of our souls before God saved us by grace through faith. Similarly, it is useful for the believer to recall the moment it was truly brought home to him that the great weight of his sin had been lifted away, that his sin had been forgiven, that he had been reconciled to God, that an eternity with the Savior awaits. Christian, do you remember this moment in your own life? Perhaps you were listening to a sermon on John chapter 6. Or maybe you were in a Bible study of Romans 3 or Romans 8. Maybe it was during some personal study of Isaiah 6 or even this passage we just read from Ephesians 2. Do you remember the sense that washed over you when you began to realize who God was and what he is doing in your life? Was it a strange warming, like the assurance that John Wesley experienced at his own conversion? When you realized that through God's mercy and the work of Christ, a debt you could never pay had been discharged on your behalf. Do you remember when you realized that by God's abundant grace, 
You are no longer an enemy of God. You have been made his child. Or when you realized that the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Do you remember what that felt like? What you felt then, and what I pray you still feel as you consider God's work in your heart, is gratitude. Gratitude to a loving God. Gratitude for the obedience of the Son and his sacrifice at Calvary. And do you remember the gratitude that rose up inside of you when you understood that God's word and his preserving grace are trustworthy and that God's patience with sinners preserved you until the day of salvation? Brothers and sisters, understand that Christian patience and the ability and desire to bear with one another is fundamentally a display of our gratitude for God's patience with us. God's patient work in our hearts evokes gratitude, which the Holy Spirit uses to reorient the way we see our position toward God and our relationships with others. Think for a moment about the ways you've seen this reorientation in your family life. Mothers, fathers, remember when your children were very, very small, tiny, helpless, They still had that new baby smell. That's a thing, young guys. Dads, do you remember how that baby had the ability to lie on your chest and put you instantly to sleep? Those were high-quality naps, dads. Now remember how grateful you were to be the one to whom this baby had been entrusted for its care, for its upbringing and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You were immediately grateful to have this tiny person in your life, to be bound together with him or her in love and devotion. Similarly, when God adopts us into his family, the Holy Spirit engenders gratitude in us for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for their presence in our lives. We are grateful for them and seek their good, encouraging them, supporting them, bearing with them. If gratitude for God's compassionate mercy inspires Christian patience, prompting believers to bear with one another, then it is the continuing work of God our Father, who is over us and through us and in us, and who, by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, makes our sanctification possible. Back to our text, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, There are various ways to speak about the ongoing sanctification of the Christian life. Here, Paul seems to be referencing the way that the Holy Spirit gradually conforms the character of the Christian to reflect the character of God. Notice that unto his people, God is over all, through all, in all. In this formulation, God is not merely an important thing. He is the first, the last, the only thing, the presence of God in the believer's life is all-encompassing. Our ability to practice Christian patience increases as the work of the Holy Spirit is manifest in our lives, sanctifying us for good works in Christ Jesus and conforming us to God's own character. The good works for which we have been set apart are the harvest of the Holy Spirit's labors in our lives. And what is the yield of this harvest? Well, Paul recites that for us in Galatians 5. 
where we see that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. This is the fruit produced in us by God for his own glory and for the strength and purity of his church and the good health and unity of the body of Christ. First and foremost, our sanctification allows us to love one another. It has been noted during this series by Pastor King and others that all of the one another's flow from the Christian's love for God and his desire and ability to love one another. Recall that in Corinthians 13, what is often referred to as the love chapter, that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Even in the face of hardship, God's people persevere in their love for one another. They face persecution, yet they endure in faithfulness in their commitment to God and to each other from a spirit of love. We see this exemplified in Corinthians 4. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. True Christian love engenders an unshakable commitment to Jesus and to our fellow believers. It has become fashionable in our day for some to, to support political figures who enjoy a good brawl. They like to counterpunch. But I think G.K. Chesterton had it right when he said that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Our courage, our endurance, our long-suffering comes from the love that God inspires in us for him and for our fellow believers. Regarding love, Jonathan Edwards writes, love of God disposes us to imitate him and therefore disposes us to such long-suffering as he manifests. Long-suffering is often spoken of as one of the attributes of God. Again, we return to love as the wellspring from which flows the Christian's desire to be conformed to the character of God, that is, to be sanctified. Implied here as well is the great truth that it is up from our gratitude for God's love and patience with us that our own ability and desire to patiently bear with one another are made manifest. Indeed, if we consider again the spiritual fruit described in Galatians 5, I would propose that such fruit is born in no small part out of the Christian's conformity to the character of God, out of his or her gratitude for the matchless grace and mercy shown to the believer by the Savior himself. We know the fruit of the Spirit to include love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. I would suggest that the fertilizer that nourishes the growth and development of the spiritual fruit is the believer's gratitude about which we have meditated tonight. By way of evidence, I would invite you to show me a grateful Christian. I will show you a loving Christian. Show me a grateful Christian. I will show you a joyful Christian, a peaceful Christian, a patient Christian who bears with his brothers and sisters in Christ. Additionally, gratitude also makes the believer gentle slow to anger, slow to take offense, quick to forgive. J.C. Ryle offers the following. 
Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, and many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Christian, take a moment to consider that each of us, in one way or another, is a weak child, a dull pupil, a lame sheep. And yet, God bears with each of us. A moment ago, we spoke of the gratitude that new parents have for their babies. Our gratitude for those little ones makes us joyful and generally makes patience an easy proposition. At that stage in their little lives, our infants have very little to offer us in return for the effort and resources we put into their raising. Essentially, all they offer is their delightful presence in our families. Yet, they are easy to love and easy to forgive. We perceive them to be a gift. They are family. By God's grace, may this also be true of us, for all of those in God's family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray.